1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women in professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. You can imagine a woman reading these words in 2016 are going to have a very difference of opinion of a woman reading it in 64 AD. In order to understand what we're reading, we have to place it in its context. For those of you who have been with me since we began our study in 1 Timothy, you'll remember who is Paul writing to? Go ahead, pretend it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. <laughs> Timothy, that's exactly right. He's writing to Timothy. Paul has warned Timothy about false teachers and false teaching. And now Paul's attention is going to be on the worship in the church. And Paul's first began by mentioning prayer at the opening of the chapter in verses 1 and 2. We're to pray for everyone. We're to pray for the will of God in verses 3 through 7. And now Paul is going to make mention of the role of women in public, in church, and in private. Paul will address in brief... Issues of apparel in verses 9 and 10. Attitude in verse 11. There are prohibitions in verse 12. And then Paul gives the reason for the prohibitions in verses 13 and 14. In brief, Paul speaks of the woman's responsibilities in verses 9 through 11. The restrictions in verses 12 through 14. The redemption in verse 15. And you don't need me to tell you that this passage is the focus of fiery debate and deep division. For some ladies, they might think, who's Paul to say what women can and can't do? One of the things we need to be clear about is this. For those who would pit Jesus against Paul and Paul against Jesus, they're going to find little comfort. For the person who holds the position that perhaps Paul isn't speaking for Jesus, remember at the very first sentence it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Paul's claim is true or it's false. He really is an apostle ordained, commissioned, and appointed by Jesus, or he is not? Are Paul's instructions inconsistent 
what the character of Christ or the commands of Jesus or the instructions here offered mere opinions or observations which the church can either take or leave. Again, one of the key words in the little epistle is charge. He's already said it in chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. He talks about the charge in verse 18, chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 13. Over and over and over again, he's going to issue orders. God has entrusted Paul with the gospel. Who entrusts it to Timothy? Who in turn is supposed to trust it, entrust it to faithful men and women? To us. Timothy's charged with guarding the treasure of the gospel. Turning it over to faithful people who in turn turn it over to others in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. So in the passage, I want you to think about where we've come from. We go from a place of prayer to a place of a discussion of women in the local church. Paul is encouraging women. He's actually encouraging Timothy to encourage women to exercise modesty and purity in verse 9. Industry in verse 10. Humility in verses 11 through 14. This shouldn't be the cause of, of alarm, at least at this point. Even most women will say, modesty and purity, check. Industry, check. Humility, check. But for the critic who insists that Christianity demeans or restricts or subjugates women, they fail to understand both Christ and Christianity and that Jesus has done more to elevate women than any other single human being who has ever lived. You've got to understand something that in this culture and in this society at that particular time in the Roman culture and the Greek culture and for the most part even in the Jewish culture there was a sense that women were property. That they could be treated with something less than dignity. At least to Judaism's credit it absolutely reveals that God created them male and female. He created them them. That human beings, both men and women, are created in the image of God. Christianity has done more to elevate women and children than any other source in the ancient world. And the epistle is written to Timothy in Ephesus. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible or the first century or Ephesus... Let me explain something to you. Orlando has been in the news. What is Orlando famous for? Be a, pretend you're a Pentecostal church. Disneyland. Disneyland, Disney World, whatever. What is the name of the movie, thea, movie studio thing? You know what I'm saying. Universal Studios, yeah. Okay, so Orlando's famous for Disneyland. I mean, before it was famous for mass shootings and a tragic death of a child this morning. Orlando's famous for Disneyland and Disney World. Ephesus was famous for the Temple of Diana and Artemis. 
You may not know this, but there were seven great treasures in the ancient world where people in the Mediterranean would go visit the pyramids of Egypt. They would visit the temple of Diana. They would visit the temple of Zeus and, and Parthenon. There was a great tower in in uh, Alexandria, the lighthouse, there were these monstrous edifices that were a tribute to humanity's creativity and architectural splendor. And Ephesus was the place of goddess worship and fertility worship. She had the most magnificent temple in the ancient world with a gigantic statue that was covered with breasts and men would come from everywhere to practice ritual sex in the temples of prostitution. Jesus Paul is going to remind us about something. He's going to emphasize the principle of headship and authority in the local church. And that Jesus is the head of the body. That, that the headship of the pastor over the flock. And the headship of the man over the woman. And these kinds of thoughts and talk creates a great deal of difficulty and strain in, in, a, in a bunch of people. But let me try and help you think through what you're reading. Let's begin by, again, looking carefully at verse 9. Paul writes, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. In the previous passage... Remember what it says. Paul has written, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting holy hands without wrath and doubting. Remember what I told you in that passage, that this is Paul's way of saying that he wants men to pray with transparency and dignity. He says, without in purity, because the open hands becomes a representation that I have nothing to, to hide in love without wrath or anger and doubting in faith. So he, he basically, basically says, this is what I want men to do. I want men to pray and I want them to pray in transparency and in love and in faith. Think about that for just a moment, because now he says, oh, and this is what I want the women to do. So when he says, in like manner, I'm going to suggest to you that there is a sense in which it carries over to transparency, humility, love, and faith. And then he's going to add something. That women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety, moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. What does this mean? It means that women are to demonstrate in their character the virtues of modesty and purity. 
Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you unless you begin to understand the culture in which they're living in, where there's rampant sexual expression and where women adorn themselves and, 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 and dress in a suggestive, in a provocative way because women aren't, weren't simply looking to beautify themselves. They were looking to attract men. Paul isn't insisting that women shop in thrift stores and, and abandon and shun coals. My wife is going to be really glad to hear this when she hears this tape. You mean I, I can actually shop at, and, and get decent clothes? Y yes. Paul isn't condemning fashion. He's not condemning trends. He's not condemning if you're in the beauty business. I have a couple of beauty consultants who I regularly call them and say, can you make me beautiful? For the person who insists that the passage restricts braided hair and jewelry, they have to take the next step and also insist the absence of clothes. So is Paul giving a blanket prohibition that you can never braid your hair, that you can never wear jewelry, that if you get married and it's your marriage day and your grandmother and your mother braid your hair and you're wearing your mother's pearls, that this is forbidden. That's absolutely not the point of the passage. The women in that particular time period would go to extravagant lengths to embraid gold in their clothing. They would literally take pearls and braid them in their hair. Again, what Paul seems to be talking about is this ostentatious display. The emphasis is on modesty, simplicity, and purity. How do women communicate not just the external circumstances of their life, but the internal character? And so Paul talks about the outward adornment. Paul uses the standard of modesty. And the person who objects or wants to push the limits and say, well, okay, Paul wants women to be modest. Modest by which standards? First century Corinth? First century Ephesus? What constitutes good taste and good sense within the culture? What exactly is Paul talking about? And each and every one of you have probably been in cultures where modesty standards are different. If you've ever been in the middle of the jungle in Kenya, you'll notice that some women don't obviously adhere to modesty standards that are appropriate by Western traditions. Some of you may have traveled in the Near East or the Far East where you see signs that women are required to cover their shoulders, they're required to cover their arms, they're required to cover their legs. What exactly is he talking about? And I'm going to suggest to you that women were admonished to dress in such a way that reflected their commitment to Christ. That women were admonished in the early church to dress in such a way that it reflected the character of Christ and their commitment to Christ. Paul uses the terms propriety and moderation. What does he mean by that? He means that you're to adopt the standards that would seem to indicate 
that this is something that is indeed decent and appropriate. I remember reading the story of a retreat that took place in 1926. And the pastor happened to be preaching and the women came and they said to the pastor, you need to tell that these women can't wear stockings. It's a scandal. And he said, do you know when women first started wearing stockings or hose? Oh, the women weren't wearing stockings. That's, I don't want to get the story wrong. They weren't wearing stockings. They weren't dressing appropriately because the women were going bare-legged to the Bible study. You know, wearing a dress, but no hose, if you will. And he goes, do you know when hose was invented? It was invented in the 1500s by prostitutes in Italy in order to attract men to have sex with them. And they were flabbergasted. They thought, no, we didn't know that. Do you know why women first started wearing earrings? It was to repel demonic spirits that they thought could invade your body. Do you think most women wear earrings today because they're afraid that they're going to be demonically possessed before the day is over with? Most women don't. So again, what exactly is Paul's concern? It's about modesty and purity. Paul's concern for women who would draw undue attention to themselves. Women in the church were not to be, according to one Bible writer, given to ostentation, costly attire, excessive adornment. Neither was seductive or sexually suggestive clothing appropriate. They were not to detract from the worship by drawing attention to themselves, unquote. And that's exactly the point that he's trying to make. Again, for the woman who struggles or complains or says, hey, are you saying that the Bible condemns beauty? The answer is, of course not. As I'm fond of saying what my pastor used to say, Chuck Smith, he would say, you know, can women wear makeup? And he, I already told you, he said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. That might not be the best quote of all time. But the point that he's trying to make is that, of course, it's appropriate for people to care about their appearance. What the Bible condemns is emphasizing outward beauty over inner beauty. And so we have to ask ourselves that bigger question. Is that the culture and society in which we live in? Are women invited to cultivate the graces inside of the character of Christ or the outward adornment. And that becomes the point. It is a tragic fact that some men value external beauty over inward beauty. It is a tragic fact that some women dress not so much to impress men, but rather other women. And by the way, this was a secret that was revealed to me only a few years ago. Someone said to me, do you know why women dress the way that they dress? And I, I'm so stupid. I go, to be attractive? And the, the, the person said, no, you know, women dress the way that they dress in order to impress other women. And I was shocked. It was like a revelation. It's like, how come nobody ever told me this before? Is it true in every case? Obviously not. But here's the point. 
God looks on the inward person. It's the inward adornment of beauty that God finds most attractive. And like I said, because Ephesus was the home of the cult of Diana, the women dressed to promote and provoke sexual contact. Some cults slavishly insist that women refrain from wearing any makeup and no jewelry, but they have no such slavish standards that men always pray with their hands directed towards heaven. And so sometimes people become guilty of a sort of a selective interpretation and application. Is this what the passage is actually saying? No makeup, no jewelry. But I'm going to suggest to you that Paul provides the balance in the very next verse. When he says in verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. In other words, women are to dress in a way that reflects their deeply held convictions about the lordship of Jesus Christ. The word translated godliness is very interesting. It's a word that is a reference to God-likeness. Now, let, let's be clear. Is Paul suggesting that women dress like a goddess? I'm going to suggest to you that's not the point. He's talking about the character of Christ. The sentence makes women who profess godliness, which is manifest in the things that they do, good works, industry, modesty, industry. Industry in what sense? The wonderful things that women do to make life easier. And for the man who's thinking, for men, you're missing the point of the passage. Women don't exist simply to make life easier for men or children or other women. But God in his grace and his mercy has gifted women with this enormous a talent and incredible ability that they want order and beauty in their lives. Husbands, when your wife is outside planting flowers... It isn't simply because she loves flowers. She loves beauty. She's attracted to beauty. And it's supposed to grace us. Later, Paul will warn and condemn women who wander from house to house, giving Satan opportunity to lead them into sin, the implication being gossip. Does this mean that women can't do anything or say anything. I don't think so. But I think what Paul is reminding women is that certainly women can teach and preach with their mouth, but that the primary focus of their teaching and preaching is going to be with their life. Indeed, ladies, where do we draw the line? We have to ask the question, how does my appearance enhance or limit my ability to represent the Lord Jesus Christ? 
How does my appearance represent Jesus? And your answer should include the character of Christ, but not simply ignore some of the cultural prohibitions or restrictions. And ladies, you know what I'm talking about. There is a way that we can, that we, that ladies can dress. Yeah, I don't want to get into the whole transgender and cross-dressing discussion at this point. We can talk about that down the road. But the point of the passage is that the Bible seems to indicate that women are to represent themselves as women and men are to represent themselves as men. So in the biblical worldview, beauty begins on the inside. There shouldn't be something controversial about that. And then it leaks out on the outside. I tell my wife every wedding we go to, honey, I'm so sorry, you're going to have to make yourself a little less attractive. It's the bride's day today. It's important that you not be the most beautiful person there. And she laughs. And then she makes herself beautiful. Elegance. Grace. Modesty. Humility confidence in Christ offers a kind of glow that no matter how wonderful the products that you have and the products that you use, they're going to fall short of what God is looking for. Christian women are not called to be unattractive. Ladies, let me say from the pulpit, you have permission in Christ to be beautiful. It's okay. What Christian women are to do is to reject the world's standards for what constitutes that which is attractive and embrace the biblical standard of what constitutes attractiveness. It's the character of Christ. So a Christian woman's measure of beauty is not the clothes that she wears, but the compassion and the care that she demonstrates to others and the character of Christ inside of her life. And there are no limits or restrictions on good works. Of course, these works don't save you, but rather they constitute the evidence of the changed heart. And so look what it says in women in the church in verse 11. It says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And you can imagine for this sentence, many ladies will go, okay, now we have a problem. Let me see if I can help you. The Greek word translated silence is hesukia. There's two Greek words that are translated Silence. Sigeo, which is the absence of sound, and this one, Hesukia. The word appears again in verse 2. It also appears in verse 12, where it says, And I do not per permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So, what does it mean here in verse 11 and again in verse 12? 
Here, submission doesn't mean absolute surrender of mind and conscience and moral responsibility. It says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. We're going to get to the submission part in just a moment. But submission never means submission to evil or to that which is corrupt or that which is immoral. No woman is under any obligation to do that which is evil, that which is wicked, that which is sinful, that which is wrong. Paul uses the word submission throughout his teaching in relationship to the authority of Jesus, that men are to be in submission to Christ and his word, that they're not to do that which is evil or corrupt or immoral. But here the word hesukia means settled, calm, undisturbed. It's a word that means a kind of voluntary restraint. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. What is he saying in verse 12? And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. The big question becomes, okay, what does this mean? What is Paul saying? What does the Bible allow women to do and not do? Again, the grammar will help us if we will pay attention to teach It actually says literally in the Greek, to teach a woman, I am not allowing. And he completes the thought and the attentiveness from verse 11. The women in the Ephesian church were allowed to learn, but they were not allowed to teach and exercise authority over a man. Does this mean a blanket prohibition for women everywhere in all Christian churches forever and ever, amen? Different people have come to different conclusions. Some have argued because of the culture and the condition of the church at that time, Paul saw this as a necessary prohibition. Although there may be some merit to that argument, I think that the merit loses force in the reasons that Paul will give later. Paul doesn't cite the temple of Diana as the reason for the prohibition or even the presence of false teachers and false teaching as the reason for the prohibition or the restriction. And it can't mean absolute silence because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14, women are invited to speak and they're invited to pray and they're invited to encourage rather than discourage. And it can't mean a blanket prohibition against teaching because elsewhere Paul admonishes the women to teach each other and to teach the children. Paul frequently mentions other women in responsible roles throughout the New Testament. So those who see a blanket prohibition for women teaching men in all circumstance, under every circumstance, seem to ignore Paul's allowances for women teaching elsewhere. Paul commends his co-worker Priscilla, who teaches Apollos a better way. The great preacher in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, Paul frequently mentions other women in responsible teaching roles, Phoebe in the church, 
Romans 16.1. Trophina and Trophosa, twins, women, workers. Romans 16.6 and 12. There was Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. So throughout the New Testament, we see women exercising God-given gifts in a responsible way that's allowed by the church. Again, there's a prohibition here. The big question that we have to ask ourselves, is this a temporary prohibition that only applied to the women in Ephesus? Or is Paul using the term in a restricted sense? I'm going to again suggest to you that when Paul uses the term authority, there's two words for authority. One is a physical ability to do something and the other is a spiritual authority based on a commission. This, and that's the word that he's using here. In other words, when a police officer is commissioned by a community to uphold the law, if a police officer has a badge and he holds up her badge and she says, stop in the name of the law, can a 120-pound woman keep a 2,000-pound car from hitting her? No. Why would the car stop? Because the shield says something. You better stop. Because if you don't obey this lady cop, she has all the resources of the entire police department at her disposal and the, all of the community. And the police and the community are going to use all of the resources that are available in order to enforce her lawful order. So what does this mean? I'm going to suggest to you it means spiritual authority. In what sense? In the sense of the ruling elder of the church. That means the ruling pastor or the ruling elder or the leadership in the church. In other words, this isn't a prohibition against speaking or teaching, but rather it's a prohibition against exercising in part teaching in such a way that you exercise spiritual authority. Let me give you kind of an example. In the United States of America, can anyone be the president of the United States? No. Are there prohibitions or restrictions according to the Constitution? In order to be the president, what are the prohibitions and, and, uh, and limitations? Oh, by the way, is there a constitutional prohibition for women being president? No. Do you wish there were? Don't answer that. Do not answer that. That's not part. Hey, James, we need to cut this part out of the sermon. The two prohibitions are these. You have to be a natural born citizen. And you have to be at least 35 years of age. Is it possible that gifted and competent people who were born outside of the United States have all of the abilities and 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 skills necessary to be the president. It is possible, but there's a prohibition that's given. Again, modern scholars are tempted to suggest that Paul is regulating because he doesn't want to engage women and men in some sort of gender struggle. But I don't think that's exactly what's happening in the text. 
The superficial reader might be tempted to read the passage absent the entire testimony of the revelation of God concerning men and women, and the careful reader can't ignore the context or the content of the passage. So why does Paul command, let a woman learn in silence with all submission? Again, remember there's a cultural context. And in the cultural context, Unlike our church, when people would gather in the church, in the early church, there was quite literally two different sections. There was a section for the men and there was a section for the women. When I go to India to this very day, they still exercise this profound cultural separation. The women are on one side and the men are on the other side. And so in that cultural context among the Jewish people in the synagogue, the women would be in one place, the men would be in one place. In Ephesus, in the Bible study and and the worship of the church, the women would be in one place and the men would be in another place. And during the course of the conversation, women were coming into the church and they were disrupting. When Paul would be preaching or another person would be teaching, the woman sitting in her section would say to her, to her husband, Moishi, what, what's he talking about? What in the world does that mean? What is he saying? And I'm going to suggest to you that the silence in the church here isn't a blanket prohibition that women can never speak. It is a prohibition against women disrupting the service. By the way, do you think it's a good idea for men to disrupt the service? No. Or women to disrupt the service? No. So there is a cultural context. It would appear that some of the women were, in fact, appealing during to their husbands for explanation. And Paul, in effect, is basically saying, Timothy, tell the ladies to wait till they get home to talk about these important issues. I believe that the passage's emphasis is on whether or not a woman can occupy the role of the ruling elder in the church and exercise spiritual authority. By the way, in our church, for instance, can you kick people out of this church? Could you say to the person sitting next to you, you know, you're not welcome here. Do you have the ability to ask people to leave and never come back? Do you have that authority? You don't. You know who has that authority? Me. And the elders of this church. By the way, do you think I want to kick people out of our church? We've been in existence for some 27 years. In the 27 years that I've been the pastor of this church, I may have had to ask one or two, perhaps as many as three people to leave in 27 years. Do you know why? Because I'm trying to be patient and kind and generous. I'm not looking for reasons to kick people out. I'm looking for reasons to have people in. When people are experiencing and exercising authority in the home, if you're a father and a mother, do you exercise authority over your children? By the way, if you're a good mom and dad, do you exercise that authority in a way where there's harmony and peace and hopefully health in that context. That's part of the point. 
In other words, the Bible doesn't promote abusive authority. So again, I believe that the emphasis is on the woman occupying the role of a, of a ruling elder in the church. And someone might say, well, if I can't be the pastor of the church, then I don't want to be a Christian. What I want to point out to you is that in the context, when we get to chapter 2, there are, men who, there are certain men who can't be the pastor of the church. So the prohibition, we have to ask a different question. On what basis is the prohibition made? Paul's restriction of a woman to teach or have authority over a man seems to be in the context, in part, of the false teachers and the false teaching and worship and church government. Warren Wearsby writes, quote, When the local church meets in the assembly, the women are instructed to exercise submission. If they have questions rather than interpret the meeting, or interrupt the meeting, they should ask their husbands at home. This rule doesn't prevent a woman from teaching or from leading in ministries assigned by the local assembly. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important. This rule does not prevent a woman from teaching or for, for leading in ministries assigned by the local assembly. This is... Wearsby's way of saying, and I agree with him, that if the leadership of the church in fact says, hey, you know what? This particular woman has such a wonderful ministry that you can benefit from her ministry. And I think that that's what that means. Almost invariably, when the text says, look, Women are supposed, you mean women are supposed to go home and ask their husband what, about the sermon? Well, what if they don't have a husband? Uh, you're just trying to trap me now. Well, then I'm going to suggest to you that you ask somebody else. You ask your dad. You ask your brother. You ask your sister. You ask anybody. You ask me after the service. Hey, what did you mean by that? What in the world were you talking about? And I'm going to make every effort to try and help you. And look what it says in verse 13. This is Paul's explanation that he gives. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Before we continue, let me be clear. What is my position? My position is that a woman can do anything and everything that they're gifted and called by the Holy Spirit to do. So does the prohibition or the restriction apply to anything? I think it does. I think it means that the woman can't occupy the office of the ruling elder. And let me just be clear about even that. Can a woman pray? Of course she can. Can she teach? Of course she can. Can she, can she go to the hospital and pray for the sick? Of course she can. Again, let's use a presidential illustration. If a person talks like a president, walks like a president, has a website like a president, and does all of the things that presidents do, does that make them a president? I know you're saying, I hope not. In order to occupy the office of the president, you have to be elected. In order to occupy the office of the ruling elder, you have to be called by God. And then you have to be 
that, that it, it has to be confirmed by the congregation. So Paul gives the reason for the restriction. He cites Adam and Eve. Paul doesn't believe that gender is fluid or that the roles of men and women are culturally determined. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This might come as a shock and as a surprise to you. But the Bible says that there are two genders, male and female. He says this, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman. So again, what is he saying? Some, are, some scholars are arguing that Paul is appealing to the Garden of Eden to reflect what was happening in the church in Ephesus. But I'm going to suggest to you, that's actually not what's happening. The argument might suggest that women are more gullible than men. I'm going to suggest to you that that's not Paul's argument. Because if that were Paul's argument, he would be wrong. Are women more gullible than men? I think that the right answer is not always. Are some women gullible? In honesty, we have to say yes. Are some men gullible? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Which is reflected on in the many choices that they make that don't work out. For the person who argues, well, is Paul saying that the reason why women can't occupy the role of the ruling elder is because they're gullible? No. Because they're more likely to be deceived? I don't think so. Because Eve sinned first? If you hold that position, then you don't understand the Bible or the New Testament because Paul places the blame for man's sin squarely on Adam. If you read Romans chapter 5 verse 12, it says, by one man sin entered the world. Paul believes that Adam is the guilty party. God told Adam not to eat the tree. Did you know that? God spoke to Adam and gave the prohibition. God didn't speak to Adam and Eve. God spoke to Adam and Adam spoke to Eve. Why is this important in our discussion? Because the struggle wasn't simply a struggle to believe whether or not God's word was true. Part of the point was not simply the deception that took place on the part by the serpent. It was because of Eve's refusal to submit to her husband. This was one of those situations where she should have said, you know, my husband told me that this is what God said and you're saying something very, very different. Let's talk to my husband about this. Because he said that this was the word of God. This is what we could and couldn't do. Part of the point that Paul is making is that there's an element of submission. Would Eve submit to her husband's instructions or would she submit to, Eve's tem or to Satan's temptations? Eve was deceived by Satan. In the grand scheme of things, Adam's sin was greater. In what sense? He directly disobeyed God. What did Eve do? She directly disobeyed her husband and refused to submit to him. Now you might be thinking, okay, now let's do the math here. If 
Her sin is the less egregious sin, and Adam's is the more egregious sin, then why is it that the prohibition extends to the woman and not to the man? It would make much more sense that only women can occupy the office of the ruling elder. And oddly enough, I find your argument rather persuasive. Some might argue in Genesis 3.16 that part of the point of the curse is he shall rule over you. And some would argue that Jesus lifted the curse, that women are no longer subject to their husbands and that he can no longer rule over her. But they're left with the repeated New Testament instructions, wives submit to your husbands, wives respect your husbands, The Bible says husbands are to love their wives and women are to respect their husbands. That Paul insists on this prohibition to avoid confusion or resentment among the pagans, I don't think is a persuasive argument. Some scholars point out that Paul is simply illustrating that Eve was deceived in the garden and that women in Ephesus faced a greater temptation to be deceived by the false teachers or false teachings, but I think it makes way more sense that the prohibition is because Paul is appealing to a created order, that God made humans, male and female, that God created harmony to function in both the home and the church, and that God assigned roles and responsibilities in the home and also in the church, and that there are lines of authority. And you've got to understand something, that when I say that there are lines of authority, don't hear the word superiority. Because a police officer has the ability to pull you over, does that mean she has, that she's superior to you? No, but she does have a different authority. By the way, is the son submissive to the father? The answer is yes. Does that mean that the father is superior to the son? No. I would argue that the man is not superior to the woman. That when God said, okay, I'm going to create Adam, and then he sees Adam and he goes, I can do better than this. God's plan is that God exercises authority over everyone. That Jesus exercises authority over the church. That a man exercises authority in his home. That the ruling elders exercise authority in the church. That men and women exercise authority in the home. It's a losing battle and a lost cause to argue sexual superiority or gender superiority. But it is a biblical truth that God created men and women with unique and complementary abilities. And so there are three views held by Christians on the role of women. And all three views hinge on how you interpret this passage. The first view, the passage isn't authoritative. The second view, it's authoritative and absolute. The third view, it's authoritative, but it has cultural 
limitations that have to be considered in light of the rest of the Bible. And that's my view. The non-authoritative view says, this is Paul's opinion. It's not God's opinion. And so there. Some have even gone so far as to suggest Paul didn't even write this. Somebody stuck this in who hates women. I don't see any evidence to support that. They suggest that whatever it means, it doesn't provide any meaningful prohibition for the role of women in the church. Now, let's even think about that for a minute. For the person who says, well, it must mean that women can exercise the role of the ruling elder in the church. Well, does that mean with all of the prohibitions and restrictions that are applying to men in chapter 2? Or is there a different standard for women? Any woman can be the ruling elder It doesn't matter what her character is. It doesn't matter what her heart condition is. I suspect that that can't mean that. The other view is the authoritative and absolute position. That women should occupy no role whatsoever. Exercise no spiritual authority whatsoever. That they can't serve in the roles of pastor or elder or deacon. Some go even further and prohibit prayer in public or worship or, or sermons in a public worship. There are those who would go so far as to be outraged that Eva and Carolyn were leading worship tonight all the while forgetting that Miriam led worship for the children of Israel in the wilderness. They go so far as to say that women can't teach a Sunday school class or be missionaries or or teach in schools. The authoritative but culturally limited view holds that Paul in part is targeting the Ephesian culture that he's limiting the role of women in a specific circumstance, but the general principle still applies and should not hinder the gospel. My view is that women are called and gifted by God, called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve in whatever function, role, or supernatural unction that has been imparted to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only prohibition that I can see is to occupy the office of the ruling elder. One of the things that we can't do is allow authority and submission to become a wedge that destroys God's order. Can you imagine if a person all of a sudden says, you know, I don't think that the Bible really means it, that, that children are supposed to obey their parents. Matter of fact, here's what I believe. A child can do whatever they want. What happens? It's chaos. Thank you, father of many children. (laughs) What happens if you live in a culture and a society that citizens are free to do whatever they want to whomever they want, however they want? It's chaos. What happens if we let women into the men's bathroom and men into the women's bathroom? Thank you. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean if you have a uterus, the only way that you can get to heaven is to give birth to a child? Well, yeah, I'm saying it that way because I want it to be dramatic and blunt. 
because I'm hoping that because you go to this church and you're taught by me, the vast majority of you are going to say, it can't mean that. Especially if you've read Ephesians chapter 2 where it says you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So what in the world is he saying? Remember, it's in the context of the created order. Clearly, Paul is speaking of women in general. In the ancient world, most women at Mary. Most women find a guy. There's something in our culture, in our societies, throughout time and space, what I call the urge to merge. Men want to be with women and women want to be with men. It may be that Paul is making reference to the curse in Genesis 3.16. The idea being that godly women who walk in humility and industry and modesty will be delivered from the danger of childbearing in the sense of pain. Some suggest it's a reference to the birth of the Lord Jesus. Since the text in the Greek reads, through the childbearing. Nevertheless, she will be saved through the childbearing. Is this a reference to the specific child, Jesus, who is given by God through a woman in order to redeem and reconcile us? Oddly enough, the sense that seems to make the most sense is that it is an appeal to the revelation of the created order in the book of Genesis. Because again, it isn't simply about the deliverance from sin. Nevertheless, she will be delivered in childbearing. In what sense? I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that when a man or a woman live their lives in accordance to the design of God. That there's order instead of disorder. That there's peace instead of no peace. And that the best way to think about it is, again, if they continue in faith. What kind of faith? It's the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, there are three elements to faith. You have to believe the facts. You have to know the facts. You have to believe the facts. And you have to trust the facts. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Some people argue that Paul is simply pointing out that women are at their best in their God-given roles of childbearing and child-rearing. And one of the roles of a wife and a mother is to care for the family. And again, does this mean that that's the only role? It can't mean that. So childbearing does not save. Can you imagine if a person goes to heaven and said, Nine kids, you better let me in. No, you have to be saved by grace. Faith, love, holiness, self-control. Do you know what all of those things are? Evidence of a real salvation that's come to us through the person of the Lord Jesus. Women are to faithfully fulfill their role as childbearers. 
pursuing godliness and dignity. By the way, whole books have been written on the roles of women in worship and leadership. But what everyone should agree, what everyone should agree, that the most important role women play is in relationship to their Lord. In the end, every single lady is going to have to appear before the Lord Jesus Christ. The most important thing is what Jesus thinks and what Jesus wants. By the way, it would appear that what Jesus thinks and Jesus wants is that beauty is first internal and second external. And scripture is not bound by culture, but definitely targets culture and refuses to submit to the culture's standards, particularly when they're at odds with God's revelation. Paul instructs Timothy to deal with the problems in Ephesus and that these principles may or may not apply to believers in the church in later ages. And by the way, if we allow women to wear jewelry but not to teach... Are we kind of engaging in a kind of selective interpretation of the text? And I'm going to suggest to you one more thing. That the prohibition can't mean no prohibition. It has to mean something. Whatever else the text means, women are to dress modestly. They're to help people. They're not to seduce them. They're to point people to Jesus, not to themselves. They're to teach people righteous behavior and exercise self-control. Women are to profess godliness. They're to respect and fear the Lord. Women are gifted and called by God to serve the saints. Women are called to continue in the faith. They're called to continue to believe and to trust. They're called to continue to love, to love the Lord, to love their husband, to love their children, to love the saints, to love the lost world. Women are called to continue in holiness, living a life set apart by Jesus for Jesus and his purpose. And women are to exercise self-control. That means they're to exercise self-discipline, controlling their life because Jesus is their Lord. And I'm done. Sometimes when I don't have a conclusion, I just say, the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, whatever this passage means and doesn't mean, Lord, we pray that we would absolutely and positively go to the core of the passage. That whatever it means to love you and worship you, whatever peace means, whatever order means, whatever it is that brings about a sense of order, that, Lord, you'd reveal it to us. And, Lord, I know that there are situations all over the world. People have asked me, well, what about China, where all of the men are thrown into jail? Are you telling me that a woman can't do anything? Heavenly Father, I don't know everything about everything. In humility and in grace, I pray, Lord, that you would help me to think about things with a heart of compassion. 
that I would be reluctant to judge another man's servant and certainly reluctant to judge your servants. In the, in the end, Lord, I pray that you would give us all wisdom as we seek to honor you in the role that you've assigned to us as moms and dads, as pastors and leaders, as people who you've given a great charge to love people and to point them to Jesus. And so again, Father, I pray that every single woman would be encouraged to be everything that Jesus has gifted them to be and to refuse to do anything less than everything that Jesus asks. In Jesus' name, amen.